y'all another episode of the soul sadness podcast solo dolo this time it's just me your host q lynn green i'm gonna be honest i've been gone for a couple months and it's a reason for it first off thank you to those that continuously listen to the podcast or anticipate episodes to this podcast is always appreciated always appreciate the love that i receive on social media all the shares all the likes i appreciate it but your girl had to take a quick hiatus why uh one my tonsils i gotta get a surgery for my tonsils like right now if it wasn't a fact i just came i literally just came from the doctor about an hour ago driving back they were like, do you want, basically my tonsils were inflamed and they were like, basically, do you want a shot? And basically they gonna shoot me in my ass or, or I could take some pills. I chose the latter, the pills. So I think for the next few days, I gotta take these pills or whatever, which I do that. I wasn't prepared to get a shot in the ass. So that, that, <laughs> that option wasn't on the table for me. But nonetheless, back for Black Music Month, that's the main reason why I came on, because I'm like, I got to do an episode. I had this whole planned out. I had this whole thing planned out. I was like, when I get off these road gigs, I was like, I, was, I had all the might and the preparation and the organization to book these guests on for Black Music Month, all of Black Music Month. That was my plan, but my tonsils said otherwise, because I literally couldn't talk for a couple weeks. That's why I've been kind of low-key. I was being more interactive on Instagram, I think of all the social media, but I wasn't even doing that because, you know, it's just a lot. And then trying to muster up energy to do these gigs, it's like, that's all the energy I really had was for that. And I really didn't want to sit through doing emails. Usually I have my assistant do all that and I just didn't feel like it, y'all, I'm sorry. But yeah, I'm back now try to be more consistent it was a couple of content creators that I was talking to and they were like and I was telling them my frustration with booking guests on and stuff and they were like just do just do it yourself so I'm like all right I'm gonna start doing that but yeah thank you for tuning in like I said it's just me this show no co no co-host no guests y'all I gotta explain to those if you ever question why podcasters why some of them take brief some a lot of them are consistent though like weekly there they give people sometimes uh two podcast episodes a week but you know for the most part i think a lot of the the ones that are excellent at what they do with podcasting are very consistent what makes it not consistent is it it takes people what they don't tell you and some of them do sometimes is that Doing podcasts takes a lot of energy, y'all. Not even that, it's just, especially when you're cooperating with other people, you have to pay those people. If you're a good host or you're a good, you know, 
podcaster, you pay the people that come on, but it costs money. Even for me to upload this episode, y'all, it costs me money. You know what I mean? It's monthly uh, subscriptions we pay for the podcast hosting where we put our, where we uh, make it available to y'all on these digital outlets. Those, that costs money. And it's not even that. It's just so much energy for me to prepare for these episodes. And I'm going to be honest, I just haven't been in the mood to create shit. Even with, I'm supposed to have some drum cover videos started. I haven't even got started on that yet because life has just been lifing. And I'm just trying to maintain my mental health balance. And I know people use that as an excuse, but it's just a lot of shit, crappy shit happening in the world. And honestly, I don't, I didn't really feel like talking, but I'm in a better space now. And I think, I think, um, moving forward, I could be a lot more consistent. I'm just openly sharing to those that, you know, have a mind to create stuff in the digital space that, it's moments and I usually have these before but I always had like a co-host or somebody to help you know push me along and I motivate but now I got to motivate myself now because I'm a one-woman team don't have a co-host so you know I'm just doing it myself and managing along and so I think in these digital spaces I was always used to having somebody to kind of hold me accountable, or they didn't even do that. It was just something innately I did. It's like, oh, I gotta keep the show going because I have this person going on. And, and since I didn't have that motivation, you know, that wasn't there. But I gotta be more self-motivating and getting there. It's just, you get so comfortable with like, you know what, I, I'm a musician. You know, I travel, that's my, that's my business. That's what I do. And so you kind of treat other stuff that you're trying to do as a second and third option but i'm getting back into a more creative space it's mostly just my tonsils like right now is a struggle for me talking but i was like you know what i'm a champion through and drop this episode you know and i shouldn't even ramble before i start saying Happy Black Music Month and also Happy Pride Month. I should have started off saying, I don't even know if I said it or not. I forgot, but that's mostly why I dropped this episode so I could do a Black Music Month episode and not tell you all my personal shit I got going on, but I was just addressing those that were wondering where I went or where the show, where the the So Savings podcast went. It's still here. It's just a lot of shit in the past couple months in terms of staffing and then also with changing up producers that was a thing and then finding the right people to help keep this train moving is a process as well and now i'm at the point now and this is just a quick before i get into the black music month discussion uh those that when you hire people when you get in you know, help with the stuff that you're trying to create, make sure it's the vision that you want and not the one, the person helping you vision. Because a lot of times when you get people on and you allow them to have a lot of creative freedom into what you're doing, they start thinking they can implement stuff that you didn't suggest or want for your vision. And then when you start to fight back on it and you give them leeway to do that, 
they get upset. So make sure you establish boundaries with everybody that you work with because when you don't establish those, it, it, it's gonna cost you in the end. And I had to learn that so many times with doing the Soul Sadness brand of just, and now I don't wanna be that person cause I never wanna be looked at as a boss, but I just have to make sure my vision is executed the way I want it. And that's mostly where the frustration comes in and why I hit these creative humps because I'm always having to collaborate with people. And I always want to collaborate with people to help, but it's like the hindrance of when you get people that just don't want, because I'm a self-motivator. I don't, I don't look for other people to motivate me. I like collaborating people because then they could probably take the idea to the next level. But for the most part, I just like to do what I gotta do, get it done, do it the proper way, however long it takes to get done, I don't care. But a lot of people, what I realized working with some creatives, they like, they think because they're expert in whatever it is that they were hired to do, that they, they're not subject to be criticized or just little tweaks and they look at oh this is gonna take this long no it's gonna take however long it's gonna take especially when you're working with me and that's where i realized that i don't establish that with myself up front like hey i'm a hard nose when it comes to making sure everything is done correctly and i'm not like nitpicking i, I don't because I, I don't like when people do that to me it's just that if I have a vision, I want to execute it the way that I envision. Where the problem most time happens with working other people, they like to implement their shit onto mine. And that's where the problem is. And it's like, if anything you get from what I'm saying, my hardships is that establish the boundary and communicate effectively of what you want if they can contribute more to it, cool. But for the most part, it should be your word that goes at the end of the day. And I've been trying to establish that with working with other people, it's been working. And so hopefully moving forward, I won't have any hiccups with that. And it's mostly not even that with me working with people, it's just, I don't have the energy to be going back and forth with people on stuff, creative ideas. Just need what I need to get done, execute it, and let's go on to the next thing. Which for the most part has been happening with a couple of projects that I've been working on and have my staff people working on. Like I said, my consoles have been most of the problem and it kind of, you know, cause you need your voice to, to do a show like this and speaking for an hour or two hours with guests and doing interviews, it's a lot. And I gotta have some energy to give to you. And if I could barely talk, <laughs> just like now, it's I'm, I feel like my tonsils is about to leap out of my mouth because every time I talk, I feel like something is poking out of my throat. It's very uncomfortable. But again, I'm pushing through because I haven't done an episode in a couple months. 
And also shout out to those that have checked out the previous episodes. I think we we, we capped out about 20 we, or we pushed out a total of 20 episodes. I appreciate that. Um, but yeah, this uh, I just wanted to say that little bit at the top of this so we could, I could talk about the things I want to talk about, which is Black Music Month. And I'm finding some way to add Pride Month in there as well, because I feel like we can interchange. I know a lot of people be like, damn, why we can't get our own month? Black people like to add it then. Uh, those of the LGBT communities, like, why we can't get our own month? But I feel like it could be celebrated both, because I feel like uh, two of those things, I feel like it's so relatable and interchangeable, and people try to act like it isn't, but it is. But I, I'll talk about it later as I get into this whole Black Music Month spill and try to find some way to to, uh, connect Pride Month as well. Black Music Month is very special to me and and something I look forward to every year. I think the whole duration of the Soul Savvinous brand, that was literally my objective and my goal we're not only celebrating uh, individual artist success, was just really celebrating black artists in totality. And Black Music Month is really a perfect way for me to creatively do that. I think every year that I've had Soul Savviness, which I've, I started in 2014, February 2014, um, nine years of this brand, I've always celebrated Black Music Month. Why? Because I feel like it's important for not even just new artists coming out, but younger generations. We we have such a black people. We have such a, a rich history in this country when it comes to music. We think about black music just in every aspect of music a black person created it. We are the meccas of sound. We could track this back to Africa of how influential we are going to the heart of America where I feel like music was started in New Orleans. And even rhythmically, you know, you talk about African rhythms, the Caribbean rhythms, all those things and how it so easily transferred over to the U.S. and everything that we had to deal with as black people, as our ancestors, or what our ancestors had to deal with in terms of uh, just, just stolen from our land, mistreated, raped, split up, families, all those things. Native language taken, but that music though, they couldn't take that from us. And I feel like music has always been the pinnacle of our liberation and who we are as a people. It's always started with the music, I feel like, you know. And when I think about how, you know, the messaging of when we get to gospel music, you know, that style, how it started in the fields, the cotton fields of 
those those songs that were created, those hymnals that were created, how it started in the cotton fields, and those were all hidden messages. You know, it's just the creativity that we have had since the beginning of time. It just never ceases to amaze me, and those are like important things. I feel like we should be learning in school, and that's a whole other subject when we talk about it in a political sense, but if we just keep it at just who we are as black people and what we've contributed to music. We start, like I said, we start from slavery, we go from slavery to post-slavery, and then during, even getting to like pre-Jim Crow, like you talking about just that era of jazz music, like the, the, the doo-wop, the, 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 not doo-wop, bebop, all, you know, jazz, the, how that started. And when I think about that time period of music, it's like, because I, I watch a lot of documentaries and I love watching things that post-date um, what, where we at currently so I can fully grasp of what that generation had to experience for that time period to create that music. And when you look at jazz artists like Louis Armstrong, you know, Billie Holiday, Sarah Vaughan, like those were tough times that they lived in. And to think black music kept cultivating to where even for them to be suitable to perform in front of white people, they had to be extra, extraordinary. They had to, to do so much just to perform in front of white people. Like just to think about the separatism in terms of uh, the audience she played in front of, you know? You know, black artists couldn't perform in front of white crowds. Even black participants, just plow, black crowd goers couldn't go to white spaces. That's insane when you think about it. Like it was a law, like these were things that could possibly happen. And yet the ones that, you know, persevered, that went through like Nat King Cole, you know, that was seen as exceptional black man to white society, he still received backlash from black people and white people performing in those times where that was unheard of. Even Sammy Davis Jr., it's just all these great performers and black artists during those time periods where just that idea of performing in front of white people was controversial. And, you know, I think we take for granted today as just not even as musicians and artists, but just us as, as music listeners, we take for granted all of the work those artists back then, you know, Ella Fitzgerald, you know, Billie Holiday, all those things they had to go through as women just to make it in this industry. You know, they had to be tough, you know, they had to be delicate on stage and then they had to be a tough ass off because they had to deal with, you know, shysty people taking their money, people deeming them difficult, and people take it from them because they choose to do drugs or alcohol, ways for people to take advantage. It's like all that stuff, you know, accounted for. And they still showed up to perform. And we didn't know all these things. 
unless it was in the newspapers or reported that they got arrested or any of that stuff. It wasn't, you know, public knowledge. You don't really find this stuff out of people's addictions and and their hardships until either um, a biopic is written about them or somebody writes a book or they tell it in an interview. You wouldn't even know that stuff. But that's what I think about black music. When I think about black music, I think about those artists first that paved the way during tough times. Like, um, it was one journalist that said it so perfectly. He said that, you know, the music history, you know, it has, you have to humanize it with the time period. That's the only way you can make it make sense. And I 100% believe that's the truth because, you know, when, when I think about black music and why I hold it, so why it's so dear to me and why I love talking about it, our contributions is that we had to go through a lot. Just a lot just to be seen and heard. Like I said, just going from Confield, singing, trying to find hope in another day that maybe the next day won't be as hard as today. And those messages, like even getting the hymnals, you know, in church. I grew up Baptist. I know some of y'all probably from different denominations, but I grew up Baptist. And so meaning that all the deacons, you know, when church started, they started off church singing hymnals. You know, I love the Lord. He heard my cry. I love, you know, we singing them songs there in church, you know, it gives me happy memories thinking that that's part of um, that came from slavery. Learning about that, you know, years ago gave me a lot of pride knowing that we were continuing it on when I was the short time that I was a, a musician in church for several years. Um, to know that we were continuing that on was dope learning that because I learned that when I was like 18 or 19 years old but yeah you know those that gives that part of black music gives me a lot of pride too and a lot of people are like oh that's the white man's religion listen I have studied religion since I was 16 years old y'all you know even still to this day I still learn different facts in historical context about certain religions so there's literally nothing not saying I know everything, but there's no possibility to where you would assume that I wouldn't know nothing. And because I say that, that part of history that comes with learning about those hymnals come from slavery, it should be shameful. I would ask the question why you would think that? Why, why would you be shamed of something to, that gave them peace and hope to continue on? It probably gave enough peace and hope to where you were created, you know? Because what's the alternative of that peace? Because radicalness, yes, it existed in in certain um, regions of America where, you know, of course you had those that rebelled against, you know, the oppression, but... For the most part, you know, that was day-to-day life for them. And I, I always question, especially black people that try to shame our history in terms of slavery and the hymnals 
and those things and saying white people's religion and all that stuff when you don't even understand that they're not even they were smart enough to realize that 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 what the europeans were trying to push on them wasn't christianity and they took it upon themselves to do what the hebrews did and followed that way of learning the truth about what their what source of spiritual power to guide them so to say that they were blindly ignorant to that is insulting for one to to our ancestors but to historical context you know i just don't like when people frame our history as a negative as though the enslaved that they were stupid and ignorant and all that stuff cuz it's so much positivity that came from that and that you can look too for that to give you give you another perspective of oh man this is a, a the the amount of power that holds with holding on to something positive when your baby was probably taken from you raped molested sold off auction half your family probably auctioned off like dealing with all those things and still trying to find hope some would say that's ignorant and why would it, it has nothing to do with that it has everything to do with all this music that came from them they turned it to something positive and that's always been the history i feel like of black people is turning something negative into a positive and that's what happened cuz you know like i said go through post slavery you know you go through all that then you know having a fight for you know land you know having a fight for you know equality and then we go keep going into these different centuries to where black people are, are still not getting an upper hand like when you really think of the jazz era just to mention again these are it's black and whites only spaces like i sometimes i just think about that sometimes like it's it's great we have grandfathers great grandfathers and even great great grandfathers and grandmothers that experienced and lived through that that really lived through all those things during those time periods and what centers them is the music that was played there that's such a beautiful thing like all the hardships in America you can be like I'm a playlist Ella Fitzgerald record and it's going to take me back to a better time. I can have a happy memory attached to that treacherous time in America where we wasn't respected or considered a, a three-fifths of a human being. I can still find positive in that. Like wow. Like watch uh, even just to add more context to what I'm saying. Quincy Jones documentary on Netflix is a perfect example of what I'm talking about like if you watched it Quincy Jones it was one part of the scene and also directed by his daughter Rashida Jones fantastic doc one of the best documentaries I've seen in a long time but um it's one scene 
in the film where uh, Quincy Jones is looking through booklets, old booklets of his um, old um, receipts that were paid to him for doing music scores. And I don't know if y'all know anything about music scores, if, you know, maybe some musicians or singers, I know, listen to this podcast, but for just a regular person that's not into music, this guy had a booklet full of scoring films, like, you know, and I'm talking about, like, you know, pieces that are 12 minutes long, and he has it charted out. He has a lot of these charted out. This man was paid $20 for a (laughs) 12-minute orchestrated symphony, like, probably one of the biggest things in his career. Like, Like, this is like playing the Grammys, like, it's like if you played the Grammys, you you charted out all this music. Just one charted out score was he was paid twenty dollars. And why that's such an amazement, and why you should see it as an amazement is that it literally takes hours to compose. It's just like if you did two weeks worth the work and we're only paid $20 for it. (laughs) That's the equivalent of what he did. And mind you, he had hundreds of these scores in this booklet. And I'm just amazed by it. And that's why I can never fully just be ungrateful being a, a professional musician because to see that, you know, and seeing what those before us had to go through just to make music. And on top of that, dealing with racism and all of the bullshit that goes with that. Not, you know, you got to go out. You can't even, you just perform, you just perform in front of so many people. Groundbreaking for your career. But you got to go fucking eat in the back with the cooks like you're no less than. You can't even sit at a table and get you a cup of coffee and a pie in a white-owned restaurant. You gotta go in the back (laughs) and eat your food. A lot of musicians and artists had to go through that back in the day. And that's what, that's what I cherish most about black music because I can never forget about those artists. I can never, when I talk about music, I have to mention that. And with Black Music Month, I was like, I just wanted to, to fully talk about that and just the different eras of music, specifically with that, all those before us that had to deal with the racism to get to just perform their art, just to perform it, have something to say, things that were meaningful, that's all they wanted. And so to those artists of those time periods, even the Josephine Bakers, the, you know, Eartha Kitts and those that were performers and actors, you know, just give that respect. And even um, Harry Belafonte, he, you know, those, those were, you know, artists that were the triple threat and made it possible for it to, for black people to be seen in a different light and for them to get opportunities to sing for the masses instead of just, 
and, and get paid what they were worth. You know, it's always a great thing to, to highlight those artists. But just moving forward, you know, getting past those eras, past um, the 50s and 60s, you know, you start hearing this bumbling and you got the bebop going on, you know, Dizzy Gillespie's, you know, you got him changing up jazz music with this bebop and people having an issue with that. That's too hip. It's too, too in the know. You know, you got that guy, you know, doing his thing and you got, you know, starting to see the John Coltrane's, you know, the Miles Davis, you get through the sixties and, you know, then this thing, you know, these different sounds, you got the BB Kings going on, you know, then you got this blues element coming in and you got the Chuck Berry's and Little Richards and you start hearing a whole different sound. It's like, this is some blues right here. And we get to that, you know, different phases. And then we get to that rock and roll, man. Like I said, the Chuck Berry's, the Little Richards, Rosetta Thar Sharp, um, You know, all those, all those great artists that didn't get the proper respect or get proper credit for writing the music that evidently, you know, certain white artists took and try to perpetrate as their own and not crediting the black artists for it. Oh, we go down the list of those artists, you know. And they try to give credit now, like the Rolling Stones, you know, and all that. They try to give credit, but all they did to me, all they did was take from black people and try to create anything good that came from it. it was because black people were involved with it whether with the writing or the the background vocals everything great with those artists during that time period it was because somebody black was writing let's just keep it a, i'm just gonna keep it 100 and say it like that you know but yeah black music and always what comes to mind to me, like I said, those artists and, you know, you get into, you know, certain areas where they had the, the, the groups, you know, I'm sure they just went through a phase to where, um, like the Temptations and the, the Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, those artists back then, they were all trying to be in groups and that doo-wop where they would just go a acapella and sing and harmonize and didn't require much, but just the harmonies. And you know, then the, 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 then you see the emergence of that with those groups. And then you, you know, got artists like um, Dinah Washington, you know, that, that she's, she's becoming that, that blues artist, but then she's also taken from, it has gospel elements. You got Ray Charles, you know, that has the country. He's, he's mixing all these different worlds up together with uh, rock and roll and rhythm and blues and country. You know, he's mixing all those worlds up together. And then we get to, you know, usher into the late 60s, early 70s. You know, you got, still got the groups forming, um, the stylistics and all that stuff and the OJs. And then, you know, Aretha gets her pop. A lot of people don't know that she was putting out a lot of records during the 60s but you know when she started to really pop that's when the rhythm and blues uh term started to get coined was because of Aretha Franklin and then you know it got to give it up to you know Miss Dionne Warwick 
listen, just a just a just an all-around legend. If you don't know about Miss Dionne Bork and her prominent vocals of the 60s and the 70s, you need to do your research. I would encourage you to do the research and learn how great she is. Because even, you know, if you're a fan of artists, her cousin, uh, Whitney Houston, even Aretha Franklin, if you're a fan of them, you gotta be a fan of Miss Dionne Ward. Because when you talk about just encapsulating, and, and when I talk about Miss Dionne Ward, gotta mention Nancy Wilson, just the work that they've done as those black artists that were prominent, the respectful, uh, elegant, the elegance they brought the music during that time period really shaped America, really shaped music when they those artists were on the scene. So gotta give that respect. And the R&B groups of the 70s, all those groups, I love the Manhattans, like I mentioned before, the OJs, even the Whispers, you know, all those artists, man. All just trying to make it sign whatever the reason for it if they were signing just to get women or whatever but you know they contribute something great and we got to give all that credit to the the black labels that were starting to form you know again much respect to motown barry gordy all the stuff he was trying to do there um stacks records yeah um yeah you got a lot of those a lot of those black labels starting from the ground up trying to make their way onto the scene and create great music but yeah i think i think about all that when i think about black music i think with which so much respect for um those those production and songwriting duos like the uh gotta give respect to uh gamble and huff for you know Philadelphia International, you know that that's just just prominent and and such a fixture in music that record label and what they were able to bring and what you know Black Moses, uh, Isaac Hayes, what he brought to Stax Records, <clears throat> excuse me, is just undeniable, you know. Um, Isaac Hayes' uh, contribution to music, his his scores, soundtrack scores, arrangements, just impeccable. Same with Barry White. Like when when you talk about black music, it's like how can you not mention those guys? You know, great writing. Another great writer, Bobby Womack. And people, I see people now on the internet. They always try to associate him with the whole Sam Cooke drama. It's like, you know, I, I wish the salacious sides of artists like with Rick James, like we we talk about who they were as artists. That's another point I want I'm gonna make later. But artists like Bobby Womack were real artists and singers and and lyricists that could really put their heart in the music and make you feel it. So gotta give that respect. I'ma I'm talk about, uh, is one point I wanna make with that in a, in a little bit, but just to just stay on the black music. And also, I'ma tie this in, this is a perfect time to, to tie in Pride Month and talk about the black gay artists that also helped shape 
different genres and sounds and fashion, you know, you can't leave them out of the discussion. And people try to, but they're so much a part of Black Music Month as well. The black, the black gay artists um, during those time periods that they may not even define themselves as they use those words back then, but you know that that was a part of black history too. You know, it's it's most you know it's very known that a lot of um, gay songwriters wrote a lot most of the the songs that you enjoy in church they wrote most of those and then when we get to that time period of um the club scenes the 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 heavy club scenes and even i guess you could go to to harlem um that the time that that time in harlem renaissance during that time period you had a lot of gay artists that that contributed and, and gave so much um, during that time period and then we fast forward to even the 70s like all those those songs that were disco a lot of that started to change the style of how music gospel music was played there and that's a whole other thing separate thing of the the describing the evolution of the different sounds of, of different genres, but with gospel in particular, it went from clapping the hands and the feet to the instrumentation started to be a lot more rhythmic um, during the 70s. You know, a lot of those artists were playing music in the church as well, and and which it transferred over, that energy transferred when some of those black gay artists were writing the music and uh, composing the music. All of that started to sound the same, and that 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 rhythm style, you know, became indicative of the church sound for a good like ten years um, during the '70s and early '80s, and that's all to be credited to black gay songwriters and musicians. That's just facts, you know. And then they started to create that sound in the clubs and that became, you know, all of the great things that we love about house music. A lot of that transferred over from disco to house. And cause a lot of times they were, if they were, I guess, revealed themselves or just stay true to themselves, they were denied access of going to church. So where they brought that, they, they transferred that energy to the dance floor, that church energy to, to the dance floor. And it just cultivated a new genre, a new subgenre, I should say. And you know, a lot of those, and which I know, because I learned a lot from them, going to certain club scenes in Chicago as well as house, getting to experience house music in its birth city, and seeing all these different, you know, um, astounding, you know, music buffs that you know whose musical history, you know, goes way past mine because, you know, they were old, not just because they were older, but they were just such an in-depth with music. And I learned so much just hearing what they like listening to in the clubs and whatnot. So, yeah, Pride, you know, LGBT community has everything to do with black music, and you better believe it. And I argue anybody. So please don't be homophobic and try to reach out with 
disrespect towards that community because it ain't gonna happen on my watch. Because <laughs> you know, if you if you say their contribution to music isn't astounding and isn't there, the LGBT community, you're sadly mistaken, and you need to get you a history book, a real book. And uh, there's plenty of them written. If I had a list in front of me or had my, or looking in front of my bookshelf, I could grab a couple of them to show you or recommend some that you could read that has it on there. But yeah, I just wanted to add, and then talk about the, the artists, LGBT artists, like you go from Arthur Conley. He was probably the first one that I could think of. He's a 60 soul artist. I think, I think he maybe had one record and I think it was supposed to be under, if I remember correctly, it was the record label that Otis Redding was a part of. And I think when he died, I think that had something, to, but I think it also had something, I think it absolutely had something to do with his um, sexual preference, that reason why he didn't make it as well, but it was all tied to that as well. The Otis Redding, uh, if I fact check correctly, I believe that's true. But yeah, shout outs to Arthur Conley, rest on the helm. I think he passed away some, I think early, I think during early, early, either 60s or 70s, if I remember correctly. But yeah, gotta give shout outs to him. Sylvester, man, that guy. When you talk about an embodiment of musical liberation, he he just he just fits that so perfectly. Just everything that he brought to music, like I was explaining about taking the church to the, to the club dance floor, Sylvester did that like effortlessly. His vocals, you know, if I closed my eyes listening to it, it sounded like he was in church. It was just that energy just transformed. And then Martha Wash, you know, part of it, Voya, that's part of uh, his legendary background singers that became the, the Weather Girls that had the It's Raining Men hit record. And then Martha Wash started to become the uh, anonymous uh, singer of all those house records in the late 80s and 90s, you know, what they contributed to music as well. But Sylvester, that guy, you know, can't can't go by Black Music Month and talk about Pride Month without mentioning Sylvester. But yeah, rest on to him. Seems like seemed like such a great soul. And you know, you can feel it in the music. Usually artists like that with great souls, I can feel that impact and that that energy through the music. And it's such a beautiful thing to realize that even when you go on that your music still lives on and people still feel connected to it because the pureness you brought to the, the art form was made clear that that's who that person was, that artist was. So yeah, shout outs to the late great Sylvester. Definitely couldn't do black, talk about Black Music Month without mentioning Sylvester. Didn't get all the credit he deserved, but for the most part, the real ones know, you know. And while I was talking about groups earlier, um, it's popping in my head now before I get, I'm just pr pretty much just going off the dome. I have a few notes, but I'm kind of going all over the place. That's how my ADD takes me. <laughs> but you know, the, the groups, you know, that were forming like the Supremes and um, 
I'm trying to trying to think of some more uh, female groups during that time period. Even with Gladys Pip, Gladys Knights and the Pips, what she did, you know, Gladys Knight was probably one of those those, those, those star premier artists of the '70s. I, I was watching, and y'all can um, I would suggest purchasing this because it's a great buy. It's a DVD set. It's a Midnight Soul special DVD set by I think the name was Burt Sugarman. I think that's who hosted it, but or owned the the thing is uh, Burt Sugarman. Hopefully, I'm saying the name right. But either way, I have the set where they have like the Soul Edition, where it's mostly just a lot of black acts on there, and the main ones they had on that show was the OJ's. Gladys Knight and the Pips, The Spinners, um, I think Sly and the Family Stone only did one set, but he blew that motherfucker, that, that stage up. I think it's some clips on YouTube with that performance on there. I think uh, Wanna Take You Higher, and um, it's, just, it's just fantastic. I think it's like 12, 15 minutes long. Great set. James Brown, I think, did a couple of episodes but those main artists that I just named, and then Ohio players came, set that fucking stage on fire. It's like you could tell who were the hot acts. And mind you, they had other acts on there that wasn't that big of names, like the Silvers were on there. And then just watching them, I'm like, oh, I can see why these artists didn't make it. Because the stage presence wasn't all the way there for some of those 70s artists. So I could see why some outshined the other, because some of them just had that, that, that quality to them. And you could see it on stage that they were just blowing that shit up. Just like, and Patty LaBelle, like the LaBelles, like Patty LaBelle was singing the fuck down. Like she was, you thought she was the main performer and not a group. Just like with um, Melvin and the Blue Notes. Like Teddy was on there. I think they were on there a, a couple of times and Teddy was blowing that shit up. And they, and you could tell by the looks in the group that, you know, they wasn't feeling that he was getting that lead vocal you know, respect, you know, from the, the people on stage, you know, but yeah, you could just tell who was the hot act. And then also Al Green, you know, you could tell from that special episode that those were the respected artists. And I love looking at stuff then because I, I could get a real, a real look at who was the hot artist. It ain't just a hearsay thing. Like when you can see it for yourself of who's making the name for themselves and, and see them at their prime. Because I think at the time, Gladys Knight and them, I think that, um, the show's run was from like 1971 to like 75. It had like a three, four year run. And the OJs, they got their hits in 19, in like 73, you know, and that's what's during the show. So being on the show, you know, garnered all this success, and then even in the DVD, the the outtakes and the behind the scenes, they were interviewing those artists. I think um, when they were packaging the DVD, um, they they had the OJ's and they had Gladys Knight, those artists talking about the, their time on that show and what they remembered about being on that show, and they were like, "Yo, being on that show, that's what made us." you know, the number one act and how we got the tour and how, you know, we became a big deal, which you could tell because they were, you know, giving their all in the performances and 
the crowd participants were giving them a lot of energy and so it made sense to me but yeah seeing artists like watching stuff like that and watching documentaries of certain black artists and groups that contributed to musical history and what that looks like and really focusing on the history as well the american history of what given context to what happened was happening during that time because during that time as well the vietnam war was going on and which was dope and they were talking about that it'd be certain portions of the show where the interview portions where they would talk about that and then they had Curtis Mayfield on and Curtis Mayfield had wrote an album during that time period when the Vietnam War was going on talking about how you know they were treating the black soldiers is one of my favorite albums but yeah it's just it's just when you really when you really look at it you know the history of of what black Americans have uh created throughout the time of history it's always the overcoming but always want to highlight overcoming and still staying steadfast and doing what worked for them whether or not um the backlash or anything that came from it it was always you know I always you know respect that that factor to it always You know, but yeah, y'all should look up that Curtis Mayfield album, Back to the World. Um, so yeah, all of his albums, really, but Back to the World is probably one of my favorite Curtis Mayfield uh, albums. Yeah, and then, you know, you look at funk music, the, you know, Parliament Funk, Funkadelic, and, you know, it had the rock, you know, George Clinton created that, that sound, and then, you know, Sly Stones, one of our top five musician, producers, songwriters. You know, a lot of those great artists. Zappin' Roger, Roger Troutman. You know, you get into 70s. You know, Stevie Wonder. Just a prodigal child of just a creative force. For so many years, constantly working with and putting on fabulous singers and songwriters like the great Denise Williams that did background for him, Sarita Wright, who he was married to, um, Angela Wimbush wrote on his albums and sung background and you know, even Eddie LaVert, you know, Ronnie and Charlie Wilson. Yeah, it's just, you know, great history when we talk about this black music. And people are like, oh, that ain't black. This is black country music, all of it. All of it stems from black music first, always. Always, I don't care who gets mad, jazz music, is forever ours. I don't give a damn what white artist plays, does their best Miles Davis interpretation or John Coltrane interpretation. It's still black music. And I'm not fronting on that. You know, it's a lot of great jazz artists. I ain't gonna sit here and act like on that. But 
I don't even try to act like we we are the. I don't try to gatekeep like that, but you gotta tell the truth. And I tell white artists if I'm doing gigs and bandmates that are white, I'm like, you do know we did this shit first, right? I definitely let them know that, cause you just y'all just ain't gonna sit here and act like we didn't contribute to country and rock music. Cause they always try to limit us to just R&B and hip hop. It's like we more than that shit. It's like everything y'all try to do, and then y'all try to redefine what y'all take our shit and try to act like you know y'all were the first ones. Like no, motherfucker, we did that shit too. You you just Betty Davis. We ain't forgetting about our rock legends. We can't forget about them. Because they'll definitely try to whitewash everything. Try to act like they the creatives of it. It's like, no, motherfuckers, we are the faces of rock music. You better get hip to Little Richard. You better get hip <laughs> to, to uh, Funkadelic. You better get hip to... Jimi Hendrix, because they love to pull Jimi Hendrix out their ass. They, <laughs> white people love to act like Jimi Hendrix the only black rock artist. Like, no motherfucker, we got a lot of them that did a lot of rock music. You just now acting like, or Lenny Kravitz, they try to act like them is the only black rock artist we got. We got a whole lot of them that it contributed to music. It's like, you better get hip to it. You better start figuring that shit out to these white folks. Rosetta Tharp, you know, definitely originator. Chuck Berry, better get hip. Tina Turner, you already know what it is. Mind you, side note, I'm still crushed by that. Is anybody else still mourning Miss Tina Turner? I got to do a special type of episode on this podcast and really break down her genius like we did with the others. Because, man, I'm still crushed by that. That loss, you know, I get she had health issues. You know, people always try to compartmentalize grieving like, oh, they were old or, oh, they were this age. I don't give a damn. I still look at Miss Tina Turner as that vibrant, what's love got to do with it in the 80s. Tina Turner, that's who I think of first in those those 70s clips where performing Nutbush City Limits and performing all those great songs, that's what I think of first. So I'm I'm still not over that. That shit kind of messed me up a little bit. I definitely cried for her. You know. And it really goes into and really crying because, you know, hopefully she found the peace that she wanted before she left and it seemed like in interviews that she was ready for that to happen just to experience something new in life, which is a different perspective on dying that I never really thought about. But, you know, she contextualized it the way she felt it. And it made sense to me. But, yeah, in terms of the the abuse that she endured and that, you know, it was hard for her to overcome, I could just imagine how carrying on all that trauma for so many years. And then there was a quote that she had to where they were like asking was it worth it you know all the things that she endured and she was like nah it wasn't worth it but you know you know it just always makes me think about the artists that have left us is is like 
did we give them the proper and I've said this before in other episodes of this podcast is like did we give them the love that they deserve not just for their accomplishments in life but just them as a human being did we really show them the proper love and we're getting into the and and I don't feel like we do at times because we're getting into these weird spaces with these and I'm going to address this because I feel like it's important to center this in any music conversation for you and I'm trying to keep this clean just for whoever listens to this there may be elders listening into this podcast so I don't want to say too many cuss words to you disrespectful non-fans of music that's what I'm gonna say because you definitely ain't no fan of music you know recently and what I'm speaking to is recently that um there was a thing to where Miss Anita Baker and Babyface, uh, Anita Baker had her own tour and she had Babyface as a special guest. And there's a lot of people. And what really started was Babyface put out a um, on his Instagram post and I think on Twitter as well. I have to check that. But he put out there that, oh, I was told not to perform. So Miss Baker could have her own show mind you there was a lot of I heard people from that were there said it was a lot of technical issues and which is fine but you know it's her show so she conducted how she wants to but I think for baby when you he had to know like putting that out there like that was placing the blame on Miss Baker and I get people already have their reservations toward Miss Anita Baker because of past stuff that they've heard not any thing that was public knowledge is just from shit from either past um people that are no longer here they they just take and I've, I've heard these stories before that she was difficult but if we just exit out that situation and just look at the situation for what it is basically for whatever reason Babyface didn't go on stage. He could have went on stage and did his show the way, however it was. But again, it was technical difficulties happening. So of course he has his right to not do the show if his stuff isn't correct, all that. But you can't blame that on Anita Baker. <laughs> it, it's with whoever's running, anybody that tours. And that's another issue I have with these non musical fans is that y'all have the people that are chiming in on these situations like this you have no idea how hard it is to prep for these tours as an artist as the feature artist as the opening artist as the stage crew as the musicians as the tech and sound people the sound guys you have no idea how long it takes you could be in you could be in a dress rehearsal you could be in sound check for an hour 30 minutes, 10 minutes, everything could be going right. And then you do your show and it all could go to shit. It's just stuff that happens while we're doing live stuff. But for some of y'all, and I've seen this happen during the Queens of R&B. If you follow me on Instagram, I did whole recaps on there of the show. I really did it to highlight you know what it's like for touring artists and give that perspective but then when I realized like oh this is a shitting contest where you know basically the members of Escape is trying to shit on the members of SWV and they were trying to make it seem like it was both groups going like no it's one group making accusations and and things that 
promoters have put in their head of what something is, which isn't the truth, instead of getting the facts from the actual group or just looking it up for themselves to see what the truth is, they run with some bullshit a promoter tell them, and then you got all this bullshit going on. The same thing is happening in that whole baby face and Anita Baker situation. Y'all taking one thing and turning it into something else, and it's not that deep. And I get where, because I watch um, some of her tweets on there, and she basically said, you know, if, you know, Babyface wanted to clear it up with his fans, because they were going at her, mind you, this happened in, I think, the end of May. This just happened. She just announced this, like, I think last week or the week before, and and we're in June now, and (laughs) she just announced that he's not going to be on her tour anymore. And it's like all she wanted was for you to clear this up with your fans, and you didn't do that. So clearly, you know, you wanted this to happen or, you know, I ain't gonna project or, you know, assume anything, but it seems like that. Cause right after it was announced that he was off the tour, he came on his social media, I think like an hour later or something and was like, I still respect Miss Baker. But at the end of the day, if you could have just cleared this up with your fans and Anita Baker fans and what was going on, None of this, you probably still have a spot on there. Maybe he don't want to do be a part of the tour anymore. It could be a, a, a bevy of things. But at the end of the day, this ain't even just addressing those two legendary artists. I want to address the non-musical fans. Stop bringing that stand culture shit. And I, I take great offense to it when you do it to black artists. To our, our, it's bad enough. R&B doesn't get the respect it deserves at certain award spaces. I ain't gonna say all of them, you know, cause they just did the Black Music Honors honor Mr. Jeffrey Osborne, uh, Miss Evelyn Champagne King, SWV and Missy Elliott. And they continuously, you know, show respect to our black artists. So I ain't gonna blanket it and say all award shows cause I just named one that does it. The Trumpet Awards shows respect, be it to awards for the most part, even though I feel like they could do more, uh, artists have more respect for R&B since it doesn't get the that much respect. The real R&B artists, I mean it like Lettuces and the Layla Hathaways, you can give them opportunities to promote their music and their stuff since they are constantly nom- Grammy nominated artists and PJ Morton, you can give them more stage time instead of these other artists. You know, no disrespect to the, the hot ones that's out there. You know, I ain't gonna, you know, say the names. Y'all know who those R&B artists that they like to put on the BET Awards and stuff like that, Soul Train Awards. But you can give more to the the actual soulful acts. That's all I'm saying. But at the end of the day, non-musical fans, stop putting the stand culture by putting these artists against each other. That that should not. There should be no room and no space for that juvenile childish BS. Quit doing that bullshit. Like I said, it's bad enough when they do that shit, when they slight R&B music on the the bigger mainstream um, award shows. Don't do that shit here because we got enough of that shit going on, especially not during Black Music Month. Have some respect. Have some respect to be threatening. And I'm sure y'all did. People was like, I didn't see nobody threatening Anita. I'm sure they did because y'all motherfuckers is crazy on the internet. Y'all just feel like 
y'all can say whatever y'all want to to these artists and mind you she could have just looked at it and kept going or had whoever if she wanted somebody to manage her social media she could have had somebody delete and block and all that stuff but how dare you disrespect musical i don't give a damn what they did they don't you don't personally know these people and if you want your money back then talk to Ticketmaster or whoever whoever runs the account for these tickets to get done but don't go on people don't go on these artists page talking shit i wish they would just let me manage their social media for one day because i would cuss all y'all motherfuckers out like when i was talking about the queens of r&b these motherfuckers one of them had the, the nerve to say that i was being a pick me now they said a whole bunch of shit which i wasn't talking all kind of shit saying how i was trying to get clout from being on because i was on taj's from swv's um instagram live talking to her and address mostly trying to address her fans and, and say what the deal was and what it's really like being a touring artist and musician for the most part a lot of people liked it and then some of them like i said these non-musical fans like to create pit people against each other and then when they don't like what, what you're saying they gotta try to lessen your voice by trying to disrespect you and it's like at the end of the day I don't give a fuck if you like me or not. What you is going to you ain't going to disrespect. And I get where Anita's coming from. Like, you're not going to disrespect me. And they and they were disrespecting her online. And people like, oh, just ignore it and block it. Nah, you got to address some of these crazy MFers sometime. Because they just be saying wild shit and think just because that person's of a certain status that they shouldn't respond back. Listen, when I respond back, I'm going to make you delete your whole profile. That's why I'm glad they didn't come to my page with that shit. They said this shit on that person's, anybody's platform. If they got an issue with something I said, they say it on that part. They don't go on my page and say it. Because I want you to come on mine and talk that shit. Because I'm going to cuss your ass out. And I ain't only going to cuss you out. I'm going to make you delete your page and make you feel bad about yourself. People like, oh, and I, and that's why I don't get on the, you don't see me on social media like that. I used to be like that when I first started on social media. But I can't go back and forth. Cause I'm like, I get vicious quickly. And so I don't even, you know, partake in that, but I'm not mad at Miss Anita Baker for, you know, trying to address the ones that was talking, but yeah, trying to like, Oh, Bayface got more fans. Listen, these are both legendary artists to try to act like one is lesser than the other is stupid to begin with. Cause they're both clearly she has no problem selling tickets because she has done at least uh, for the past nine years have been doing, been touring and she hasn't had a featured act yet. So that should let you know how powerful, but again, you can't really say nothing to people, people that think they know everything. They got so much to say, but ain't spent not one second on the stage performing and playing music, but can tell you how to do your job. That's what the fuck, that's what the shit that bothers me. It's like, you don't even do this shit for a living, but somehow you gonna try to tell us, the musicians and artists that perform the shit that we don't know what the fuck we talking about. That's the, the most, that's the most, it, that's the most eye-opening thing that I noticed about the internet is just that the people, they just want to have their opinions and don't want it questioned and said. You can question anything just this whole duration of me talking on this podcast, you can question every, literally everything that I've said out of my mouth because I don't think I'm right about everything. 
Like you, I'm open to people correcting me. But at the end of the day, when it comes down to shit that I do for a living, experienced and true to the craft, you're not going to challenge me on that. And a lot of people don't like, people didn't like what I said because I post a lot of stuff on Instagram talking about touring. When these battles were going on, they didn't like what I said because it's like, yeah, you kind of have to have experience to talk about this shit. You can't just blankly say, oh, this person gets paid this much. You have no fucking idea how touring contracts work. So how the fuck would you know what was in Miss Baker's contract and Babyface? And, and then it was someone saying, why are you calling him? That's shady and disrespectful supporting act. That's what it says in his contract, you dumbass. How are you going to get... It's literally people mad just because he was called a supporting act. That's what that is. What the hell else is... That's the thing. It's like people think being a headliner is everything. Sometimes a motherfucker just want a headline. Some people just... Again, trying to explain this to people that have no fucking idea how this industry works is so bothersome. Because there's so many different compartments and, and different terminology that we use in this business and you can't blanket it and say this work because this one artist does this this is a criteria for all of them no all of them don't have the same contracts every artist that performs don't they may have the same type of writers they might have the same type of uh request at certain shows may be same but then some of them have different writers and requests what they attribute to a want for their show it's their show people are paying to see so they can ask whatever they want to it i just i'm just amazed that these non-musical fans that have so much to say and don't know what the fuck they're talking about it's the most annoying fucking thing in the world to hear people talk about shit they don't know nothing about it's like if i don't know what I'm talking about, I just be quiet and hush. I don't keep going on like an idiot because then you're going to, like it was one guy on the internet, it was some, some, somebody doing a cover of a song and in the caption they were saying who the artist was. They was like, no, that's actually this artist. You're mistaken. And it's like, no fool, this is a, this is a sample. They sampled that artist. <laughs> This is a sample of that song. This is a cover of that song. That wasn't originally done by them. And then they were like, oh, my bad. And then somebody in the comments was like, see, this is this type of people that come in the comments always running their mouth. And they was like, hey, have some grace for me. I said I was sorry. No, you didn't say you were sorry. You didn't apologize. You just said you you told them that they were mistaken that they didn't know and then when you got corrected you got quiet and somebody called you out on your bullshit and you got mad about it like oh give me grace that's what you should have did or you should have researched it instead of opening your mouth acting like you knew what was happening see that's the type of stuff that happened on this internet it gives people the power to think they word is bond and that they know every motherfucking thing. It's like you can't possibly know more than somebody that gets paid for a living to make music. You can't possibly know more. I'm just astounded by the comp, the the air, the sheer arrogance and and then people had the nerve to accuse me of being uh, arrogant 
because I said I was a touring musician when I make these discussions about those type of situations. It's like, no, I say that so you can understand that my voice in this conversation is important because I know the ins and outs of it. How to fuck a regular person, and it's no disrespect to whatever you do for a living, but you don't do this for a living. So how possibly, how do you fathom that your opinion is going to matter more than somebody that makes a living off of it? I just don't understand that logic. There is no logic. How about that? <laughs> That's what I garner from that. But yeah, it's just, it's just annoying being in a world full of people that can't simply process information for what it is. And then, and which is sad because it's a lot of artists that I've seen that had misunderstandings or mishaps with Miss Baker, and that's how they're forming the opinion of all oh, she's wrong automatically just because of the, it's like you're not even understanding the context of what's happening. You don't even care actually the context of happening. You just automatically gonna take Babyface aside and he has a part to blame in it as well. That's just what it is. He can't control his fans, but he's the one that implemented her into it of, of insinuating that she was the one, the problem of him not performing, not that you would refuse to perform because your the technical issues with your set wasn't right. You could have just said that and not saying, oh, they said I couldn't perform so she could perform her own set. Yeah, because it's her show. That's, that's how that happens, face. Wording it like that only gives the assumption that she's in the wrong. Like two plus two equals four. All you gotta do is say, hey, they didn't do my, the technical issues with my show, and so that's why I didn't perform. You, didn't, you don't get to say that because you still could have performed. You just chose not to perform because you're, which you are 100% in the right to not wanna perform if your stuff isn't right. But just say that, don't add her to it like her team is at fault when your team had however long to set up and get done and you didn't do it so there's that and you know it is i guess you could say it's petty that miss baker didn't want to share her showtime with babyface because they could have split it up but she didn't want to split up her show so you know it is what it is i guess you could say that's petty yeah but you know hey it is what it is but i just mostly brought up that situation and black music month at the least is that quit disrespecting our legends Quit bringing that stand culture bullshit to our music because I feel like a protector of black music and we don't need that nonsense. It's bad enough when y'all do that shit with the pop artists and got all these stand names, the Navies, the Beehive and all that bullshit. Don't be bringing that energy into the black space, in the black music space, the R&B space, the, the, the legendary spaces. Cause there's no competition. It's all love and respect to all those artists. There's no competition. And a lot, and we should, it, I need to do a show on that and tie how the ego and the arrogance is, is, is really the insecurity of the fan of that artist is projecting insecurity. We, I need to do a show on that and harp on that. But I only brought that up in this episode cause I'm tired of you non-musical fans with the bullshit you have no experience in music you have no experience in how it's created you have no experience on performing on stages but y'all are so hypercritical 
of music and you don't even fucking make it. And if you do, the shit is subpar and ain't nobody buying the shit. And you probably should quit. That's the truth. I'm just a realist. I just speak the truth. I can't mince my words and make this shit nice. I just got to say what it is. If you got an issue with being called out because you ain't a musician or artist, quit being so critical of music if you don't make it. That's the point of it, what I'm saying. Quit being critical of music if you don't make it. And even if you do make it, you need to find better ways to say, be subjective about not liking a certain music or artist or style and find some way to figure out why you don't like it or whatever. Quit being hateful online because that shit ain't going to get you nowhere. But blocked. And people really still take pride in that. That's so childish. People have been doing that since 2009, getting prideful about being blocked. That's so stupid. But yeah, giving all respect to black, black artists and Black Music Month at all times. Go from R&B, blues, rock, all the subgenres, house, funk, all of it. All of the black music, all the black creative. And probably I'm probably going to do another episode. Hopefully I can do another one next week before the end of June with somebody and we can get a little bit more in depth into different uh, contributions to music. But I am going to wrap this episode up by saying give all the respect to Black Music Month and the artists that make it and find better ways to express why you don't like something instead of being nasty. And then also find you a musical documentary to watch and get inspired. It's Q Lynn Green, your host of Soul Savings Podcast, and we out. Whether you need to be comforted, soothed, or relaxed, Soul Savviness got you the ultimate getaway. You are listening to the sounds of Soul Savviness Podcast where we are sure to put your mind, body, and soul at ease.